Welcome to Kind Mind. This is Todd. Thank you so much for listening to this show. And according to Spotify Wrapped this year, Kind Mind was in the top 10% most shared and most followed podcast. And the number one way it was shared was via text. I think that's pretty special because it means that you guys are actually gifting it to loved ones and continuing the conversation. And that's the most important part of this work, that it continues. I don't feel like anything that I'm sharing is conclusive. We want to keep learning together and keep exploring and be inspired by wonder and curiosity. I want to let you know that there will not be a Kind Mind gathering at the end of this month because it would be December 27th, so we won't meet at the homestead. We'll take a break for in-person and Zoom there and encourage you all to rest and recharge and hopefully connect with loved ones. But for those of you supporting this work on Patreon, we will have a solstice poetry chat and we'll look at a poem called The Night by Rainer Maria Rilke, Wednesday, December 21st this week at 7 p.m. You can find the details in the Patreon. And if you'd like to support this work on Patreon, you can do so for as little as $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash kindmind. And you can cancel anytime, but I think you'll like being part of our virtual community there and being able to access the bonus resources like the recommended reading list, guided meditations could be a good time to start your mindfulness meditation practice. Well, today we have a really informative and educational live freer dialogue to share with you with an eminent guest who Dr. Cornell West has described as one of the great civil libertarians of our day, and that is Nadine Strassen. But before I present the recorded dialogue to you, I wanted to hop on here and do a little preface because, one, this was recorded back in August of this year. And as you know, sometimes it takes me a couple months to get caught up with recordings, but I really wanted to do this sooner. It just didn't happen. And since that time, a lot has changed on the free speech front. I mean, uh, Elon Musk purchased Twitter. We had the the midterm elections and uh, there was that awful attack on author Salman Rushdie in New York. So these things move fast, but the fundamental principles and the core message and the words of caution that Nadine shares in this episode are really timeless. And secondly, I wanted to give just a little bit more context to the catalyst behind hosting this conversation, and that was my ban from Facebook. Earlier in the year, I started noticing that Some of my posts were being limited and even blocked. When I started having dialogues and sharing clips on Facebook, started with a conversation about incarceration and homelessness. It couldn't be shared further. I couldn't boost it. And then when I talked about cryptocurrency and shared some some footage from that dialogue, after it reached 10,000 views, Facebook sent a message to me saying, we've blocked anyone further from sharing this or commenting on it. And then I noticed that um, anything I posted was getting really limited in its reach. Out of the thousands and thousands of likes and follows of the page that I managed, it would show up in like one or two news feeds and people would be reaching out to me saying, hey, why why can I not see your stuff? And then it all um, 
culminated in a notification that was emailed to me from Facebook saying, we are banning, well, we are permanently disabling your account. That was my personal account, which is needed to manage the pages. And very vaguely stating that we don't feel the content you produce meets our community standards. Now, of course, that is the prerogative of private media companies like Facebook. But I took some time to reflect on this before I brought it up here to you and talked about it with my guest, Nadine, because I wanted to clarify my own thoughts on this issue. I mean, I would like you to think about what do we want out of these big tech companies? Because there's not many of them. Nadine points out in this conversation, if there were thousands of places you could go, it really wouldn't matter how the terms shook out for different companies. But when, when billions of people rely on this, wouldn't it be good to have more transparency? Because so many people did not know and still do not know probably. And that's why I wanted to, to give this uh, preamble here. Because one of the things I really feel bad about with my removal from Facebook I mean, there's, there's, there's good that's happened inadvertently. I have more time and I'm more plugged into nature and real life. But I feel bad for the many people in my family and friends and colleagues and other associates that I kept in touch with only through Facebook or through Messenger. And I would imagine from their point of view, it looks like I either just deleted my account or, or perhaps I unfriended them. And so if that's you listening, I want you to know that I would never do that. Um, I deeply appreciate all the connections that I've made through this show, through my music, through my travels, through my speaking. And I'm not the only one that has experienced this um, at, at like my level of, of business and operation. I've talked to many people since then that had small businesses and they were just suddenly removed from Facebook. And I think it can be really detrimental for people... Um, at my level, you know, trying to, trying to make ends meet. So that's what we explore in this episode. I'd like you to take these notes with you as you listen. There's a couple other points to make. I was talking about uh, what I thought was a Supreme Court case or, or maybe a Texas Supreme Court case that was ruling in favor of social media companies to be able to remove people for viewpoint only. So basically for no reason at all. And Nadine wanted to add on to that afterwards that some detail that, that the court had issued a temporary ruling just for the duration of the lawsuit. I don't know where it's at today, but, but it was not a ruling on the merits of the case, just where the equities should, should lie in terms of whether the law remains in effect or not pending a final ruling by the highest court to consider the case. But she goes on to say the court's temporary procedural ruling could, of course, be at least some indicator of what its final substantive ruling would be. Now, one of the concerns that comes up in Nadine's book and, and one of my shared concerns is, is basically that the way censorship is wielded by those who have the power to do it and why it's, in my mind, the kinder thing to promote free speech as a common good, and let bad ideas get worked out, be corrected, or uh, the, there be other kinds of consequences. Because this power is often wielded unfairly and disproportionately by people with power, t 
typically white, male, wealthy. And recently I, I heard LeBron James say in an interview something about his disappointment with the media not asking him questions about a photo that surfaced, an old photo of Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, a photo of tacit racism. And I think he was disappointed and surprised because it's well known that he has been a longtime Cowboys fan. And something that he said that, that really saddened me was just that when black people make a mistake or take a misstep in their speech in, in public, they're more harshly criticized and, and held to an unfair standard. And this statement actually bears out to be factual according to the research that I've looked at. But if you just take some examples from the sports world, the ignoble actions and practices of the football coach, Urban Meyer, while at Ohio State, a report revealed how he mishandled or failed to handle accusations of domestic abuse from one of his assistant coaches. He then retired from Ohio State and uh, eventually became the head coach in the NFL, the Jacksonville Jaguars, where in his brief stint, he kicked a player. He used a, a lot of inappropriate language. He was caught on video re receiving a lap dance from a young woman in a bar in Ohio after a loss instead of being with the team on the plane back to Florida. And now he's on TV again as a commentator. So it's just... There's so many examples of how white, powerful men can fail upward. And the owner of the Phoenix Suns, Robert Sarver, has many, many accusations of toxic workplace. An independent investigation determined that the owner used the N-word at least five times in public. And four of those times he was told by subordinates that he shouldn't be saying that. There is credible evidence of unequal treatment of female employees, sex-related statements and conduct and harsh treatment of other employees that constituted bullying. But to this day, he's still the owner. Now, he said that he would like to move to sell the team basically from public pressure. But when you compare this to, to the punishment that comes for, for the players, whether it be Kyrie or, or whether it be somebody like Colin Kaepernick, who essentially had his career cut short because of speech. Over in football, aside from the Jerry Jones photo, you have longtime owners like Dan Snyder of the Washington Commanders, is their nickname now. But in 2013, he vowed to never change the name from the racist term that was the former nickname of the Washington team. And he said, you can put that in caps, the word never. It took a House committee and their investigation of the Washington commanders to fully expose from that probe the toxic work culture perpetuated by the owner, white, powerful man. And to this day, he still owns the team. But that, that report included more than 40 women coming forward who are former employees of the organization. 
with allegations of sexual harassment and discrimination. The report also accused Snyder of paying former employees hush money so they wouldn't come forward with their allegations of abuse and sexual misconduct, exploitation of women, bullying of men, and other inappropriate behaviors. The report described it as commonplace and that he was a hands-on owner who had a role in nearly every organizational decision. That report went on to further expose that the NFL, the league itself, has not protected workers from sexual harassment and abuse and aided the owner in covering this up. So this is my real issue that I believe those who are more vulnerable, those who don't have a voice, end up being silenced. And therefore, we ought to move the needle towards transparency because of how this power of censorship is wielded. There is a a famous quote from Maya Angelou that she is convinced that courage is the most important virtue because without it, you can't practice any of the others with consistency. Similarly, I care about kindness on this show and in my work because I don't think you can practice it without learning something deep about every other virtue. If you're going to be kind, you're going to have to be vulnerable. You're going to have to be honest. You're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to be forgiving. You're going to have to be non-attached, non-controlling to respect other people. And so this is one of the reasons why I've decided to enter in this space, share a little bit about my story, and talk about something that otherwise I'd prefer not to talk about because it's so easy for your words to get misconstrued in this space. But I do feel that, once again, vulnerable people, uh, people who have been historically oppressed, stand to be harmed by the weaponization of censorship and have been harmed. So while I do care deeply about safety and safety on the internet, safety in these, on these media platforms... It's scary to think about a few billionaire tech entrepreneurs having so much power to be able to shape public perception and narratives and influence the way we think. Multiple times I I mention how censorship can be stifling of democratic processes. I didn't mean specifically the election. I'm just saying that Debate and open dialogue and discussion and and a wide range of ideas and stretching the Overton window, those are all democratic principles or values that I think we want to protect. So that's what I'd like you to keep in mind as you listen to this conversation. But as always, I'm learning, thinking out loud, sharing my ideas, inviting guests to help me learn. But I welcome your feedback, and I will keep exploring similar themes if you'd like me to. And so I welcome people of all different backgrounds, all different ethnicities and cultures and orientations and identities to explore wisdom and kindness. So once again, thank you so much for listening to me, for supporting this work. And I still have access to Instagram at Michael Todd Fink. Please connect with me there if you've lost touch with me on Facebook. But it also means a lot if you could 
support this work on Patreon because it's one more way that we can communicate or join the email list on my website, michaeltodfink.com or follow my YouTube channel at Michael Todd Fink. Thank you. I hope your holidays are going beautifully. And now I present to you Todd Talks with Nadine Strassen about censorship. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Nadine Strassen, who's a professor at New York Law School and the former president of the American Civil Liberties Union from 1991 to 2008. She was the first woman and the youngest person to ever lead the ACLU, our nation's largest and oldest civil liberties organization. She received her BA degree from Harvard College and JD from Harvard Law School, graduating magna cum laude and serving as editor of the Harvard Law Review while there. She's also since been awarded many honorary doctorate of law degrees from several universities. She's also a founding member of Feminists for Free Expression. Her numerous publications include the following award-winning books, 1995's Defending Pornography, Free Speech, Sex, and the Fight for Women's Rights, 1996, Speaking of Race, Speaking of Sex, Hate Speech, Civil Rights, and Civil Liberties, and most recently in 2018, Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. And this one is widely praised by ideologically diverse experts. And so much more could be said about her distinguished career, but Professor Strassen, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with me today. It's a special honor to be able to host you on this podcast. Oh, Todd, I hope we can be on a first name basis, and I consider us to be professional colleagues, okay. and I prefer first names. Thank you. It's a, uh, your podcast is so interesting. I've enjoyed listening to other episodes, and it's my honor to be able to talk to you and your audience. Well, that means, means a lot to me. Thank you for saying that. So I'd like to begin by sharing with you, I, I give you a little bit of background, but I, I recently lost access to my Facebook account, and I had been building a, a couple pages there. I'm a musician, as you may know, and I have my podcast, and I do my mental health work and public speaking. So I've built a couple of pages there over the years, and then mysteriously, I received messages from Facebook just base, ba- vaguely saying that the content that I produce does not meet the, their community standards. And ultimately, I tried to uh, request a review. I tried to contest that, but to no avail. And then my account was permanently disabled. And instead of reacting or complaining on other uh, media platforms, I thought I would take this time to understand what I truly think about free speech, to understand myself. And so I took time over the past couple months to read and learn and discuss with people and it, it led me to your book, and I found your book, to the hate book, and why we should resist it with free speech, not censorship. I found it to be incisive, clear, compelling, and also accessible for, for people like me. So maybe we could start, if, if you could help me understand like a basic summary of the First Amendment, and then we could maybe talk about my, my experience too along the way. Oh, well, thank you so much for those kind words, Todd. And it's a very complex 
subject that I taught an entire semester-long course in law school about free speech, and that basically only skimmed the surface. So in a, in a short book, one wants to get to the essence uh, without oversimplifying. Uh, but, you know, there are so many myths and misunderstandings about freedom of speech in the United States and First Amendment law. Given your situation with Facebook, the very first point I want to make you know, but most people do not know, which is you have no First Amendment rights against Facebook or against any private sector company. Even though these tech giants wield so much power, for many people, much more power than the government wields to censor their speech, right? I think Facebook did you more harm by disabling your account than you're likely to face from a police officer or a prosecutor, right? right. Uh, you haven't broken any laws, but community standards, they have complete discretion to decide what the community standards are, and they can kick you off arbitrarily for any reason or no reason. So ironically, if you were punished by the government, that sounds worse, but at least you would have a First Amendment defense. You could get the ACLU or other organizations to come to your defense. Um, the basic premise underlying our whole complicated free speech law under the First Amendment, it goes back to a famous statement that's usually attributed to Voltaire, I disagree with what you say, but I defend to the death your right to say it. In other words, the notion of, here's the way that lawyers describe it, viewpoint neutrality or content neutrality. Government may never punish you because it disagrees with your viewpoint, the content of your message, the idea, the ideology. Uh, no matter how offensive or unpopular it might be, no matter hateful it might be from the perspective of even the vast majority of your fellow citizens, that is never a justification for suppressing it. If we disagree with somebody else's idea, if we hate their idea, if we think it's hateful, our recourse is to ignore it or to answer back, to refute it, not to suppress it. So we fight it out in the so-called marketplace of ideas. That's completely fitting in a democratic republic such as ours. Now, the other basic point about free speech, which is usually misunderstood, is that it is not absolute. So a lot of people who attack free speech are attacking this caricature and they say, oh, you free speech absolutists, you think speech can never do any harm and you oppose all restrictions. Not so. Government may never restrict speech solely because of disapproval of its idea, uh, its content. But if you get beyond the content of the message and you look at it in its overall context, if mm -hmm. in certain specific facts and circumstances, the speech directly, imminently causes or threatens certain serious, specific harm, then the speech can and should be punished. And the, our Supreme Court has recognized several categories of speech that satisfy what's often called the emergency principle because the speech is presenting an emergency of imminent harm. Uh, some of these will sound familiar to you and your audience. Uh, intentional incitement of imminent violence that's likely to happen imminently. That exception has been raised often in the context of January 6th. 
Another is targeted harassment or bullying. And there are other common sense exceptions. So in a nutshell, First Amendment law prohibits the speech that is the most dangerous, right? Because it presents an emergency. But by the same token, it prohibits the censorship that is the most dangerous, which is government picking and choosing which ideas are good and which ideas are bad. So then this law or this amendment is protecting us from the government is is a better way to understand it. But sometimes I hear that entities are infringing on our free speech rights. Both are correct. So because the concept of free speech is larger than the Mm -hmm. First Amendment law. To my, to my mind, as a civil libertarian, I have the First Amendment protection of free speech against government invasion is a necessary but not sufficient condition for fully flourishing exercise of free speech in our society. We need to depend on other sources of law uh, to protect us in other ways. And we also need to generate, and Todd, this is really important for you with all of your cultural activities, uh, we need to foster a free speech culture, right? We hear so much talk now about a cancel culture, which is really stifling free speech, regardless of all the legal protections, if people are afraid to speak up because they're afraid not that they're going to be arrested or prosecuted by government officials, but they're afraid that they're going to be canceled or retaliated against or shamed or shunned by their friends, by their peers, by their fellow employees or their boss. In other words, that cultural impact can be even more stifling than government power. And, you know, we we talk about cancel culture as if it's a new phenomenon. It's not. Way back in the um, early 18th, no, early 19th century, Alexis de Tocqueville came to the United States uh, to study uh, democracy in America. And he wrote this famous book called Democracy in America. And he was very, um, uh, you know, coming from France with its own revolution. He was very inspired by the American Revolution and our Constitution and Bill of Rights and First Amendment. But he was concerned about the dangers of giving, you know, the majority control over the levers of power because there can be tyranny of the majority, to quote a famous phrase, can be just as oppressive as as government uh, tyranny. And he talked about the danger of popular opinion stifling dissenting views and countercultural views. In 1859, an Englishman, John Stuart uh, Mill, wrote the most famous, most classic defense of free speech called On Liberty, and many people are surprised to, to, to see that, that that whole book is focused not on government power to stifle speech, but on social pressure, mm-hmm. peer pressure. Mill sees that as being at least as dangerous, if not more so, than government power. 
So what you are doing through spreading education and information about free speech, uh, which leads to more support for free speech, you're helping to build the free speech culture, um, which will help encourage people to know what their free speech rights are, to exercise them, to protest if somebody tries to interfere with them, and hopefully to stand up for other people's free speech rights whether they agree with what right. the people are saying or not, or not. There's a larger underlying principle that binds us all together here. I agree. And when I think about the protection from the government, it's, it feels like that's the floor, that you wouldn't end up in jail because it's a, a common good to have dialogue. So we have that baseline of protection. And yes, anything that seems to stifle the democratic process is concerning to me. And when I think of, uh, you know, when I just reflect when I was reading your book and reflecting on my purview of this, this issue, I recall a fight probably during your time at the ACLU to, to respond to calls for censorship in song lyrics from metal to hip hop and shows like Jackass and the, the book Big Brother that preceded it. And of course, as a musician and artist, I was interested in all those things because they were taboo. But it but then it seemed like there was a shift from that from the same political contingency to want more censorship in a different territory of expression. So I guess my takeaway is that there's more of a, a call for censorship all the time, especially with new technologies. And it's probably more to do with in-group, out-group bias. Basically, like whoever holds the eraser wants to use it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And many people use the phrase uh, to describe most people's attitude toward free speech is free, they believe in freedom of speech for me, but not for thee. And uh, I recently was asked to write a piece for Tablet Magazine about uh, why liberals are abandoning the First Amendment was or free speech was the way the editor put it to me. And I pointed out to him that throughout my entire long adult lifetime and career, there have always been attacks on free speech from all across the political spectrum. Uh, the right and the left uh, usually just disagree about exactly which speech is most dangerous. Sometimes they actually agree on that too, although uh, for somewhat different reasons. So you kindly mentioned my my book from 1995, Defending Pornography. Um, I was writing it mostly to because I am a feminist. I strongly believe in and have fought for equal rights and dignity and safety for women. Uh, and it was distressing to me that there was then and to this day, there continues to be a wing of feminists who believe that we are somehow inherently undermined and endangered and demeaned by sexually explicit expression, that it leads to um, degrading attitudes toward women, discrimination and violence against women. Uh, it's true that a lot of things that people can read, sexual or non-sexual, can be demeaning and disparaging toward women. Uh, but as always, I believe that censorship does more harm than good, uh, especially to those of us who lack political power. Anyway, at the same time mm -hmm. that from the left, you had these so-called radical feminists arguing that pornography or sexually explicit speech should be censored in order to promote their version of their vision of feminism. You had the so-called religious right, 
um, uh, Christian conservatives and, and political conservatives arguing also that pornography or sexually explicit expression should be stifled, but for a very different reason, because right. they thought it undermined the traditional American family, right, where uh, right. you only have sex within the confines of a one mother, one father, um, and, and you know, 2.5 kids and a dog. And, and, and yet the two forces came together and uh, were very powerful in promoting sensorial legislation, including at the national level in, in the United States. So um, we have to, this is why I, I believe if through experience, so it's not just a belief, let me say, I have observed for many years in many different contexts that uh, the price you pay if you don't consistently defend free speech, even for speech that is completely antithetical to your own views. In my case, that would be speech that right. propounds anti-civil libertarian views. I have to defend the underlying principle because once I see to the government the power to decide that some ideas are going to be accepted, but some aren't, then it's just a matter of time, as you say, before the political pendulum swings. And it's yes. my ideas that, that are in danger. And that's exactly what I'm trying to warn people about, or at least create more discussion around, because some of the precedents that I think are being set now with the social media companies' right to remove anyone for their viewpoint that sensorial power can really be wielded in the wrong way. And as I share my story with people, they're actually quite surprised to know that that happened to me. So we also don't know what we don't know. It's, exactly. We know like it, you know, what it's like to not see Trump's tweets every day, but people also don't know what else they don't have access to. Exactly. And how that can shape the, the political landscape. Right. My concern with the future, regardless uh, of what you believe, but, or especially if you're progressively minded like me and, and your main cause is kindness, freedom and equality for people, that the power dynamics are always shifting. And when we, mm -hmm. when we give all this power or we protect the, the power of censorship in the hands of, of a billionaire entrepreneur, when they are lockstep with the government, and when we just think of all the things that have happened just over the last four or five years, if there was ever a time where I felt like we needed just more free speech than ever before to safely navigate us through some of these crises of meaning between climate change and the pandemic and political division, we just need more opportunities to expose ourselves to, to ideas. Todd, so you have I'm so sorry. May I just no. just comment on you've made so many good points and I'd like to, you know, unpack at least one or yes, two please. of them for you, uh, the rest of the of the listeners here. Um, when you say we don't know what we don't know, uh, Facebook, uh, to its credit, has begun to give some information, but it's very, very, very far from the kind of granular transparency mm -hmm. that we should have about what the policies are. But in, because of pressure from some organizations, including the ACLU and an organization that's outstanding in this domain is the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, because it's a full-time civil liberties organization that focuses full-time on the online sphere. Um, and uh, because of pressure from those kinds of organizations, 
Facebook has been giving quarterly reports where it has aggregate data of how many um, communications it takes down in uh, you know each day, my goodness, each hour, the numbers, and in what categories. The numbers are absolutely staggering. It's like so, every hour, just right. in one category, hate speech, hundreds of thousands are being taken down. And, mm-hmm. and not only is there no transparency about, you know, what, what, what exactly community standard did you allegedly violate? No, um, how can I mean, you, if I had an option to know what that was or to correct a post, or, or the right, like the right to appeal, right. Um, and and your right. user, your your fan base doesn't even know that this. Is no, they don't even know. Us. That's another reason why I wanted to have this conversation with you. And 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 so you know, some of us are very you know a little bit leery about proposals for heavy-handed government regulation that would tell these companies, you know, you right. must air this, you must not air that. That's a little bit bothersome because they are engaged in communication and they have their own. First Amendment rights and just the way I wouldn't want the government to tell you who you have to have on your podcast and who not. So that I find a little bit bothersome. But, you know, more on that thread a little more. Yeah, sure. After you complete what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. We've got so many different irons in the fire here that are so interesting. Um, But, you know, to have some structural procedural type uh, guarantees. So mm-hmm. basic fundamental transparency, the right, first of all, the right to detailed information about what the community standards are, including examples of, you know, what would, what would violate them. Uh, if you are going to be taken down to have notice in advance, hopefully, uh, and of exactly which community standard you're allegedly in violation of and the reason why, and an opportunity to put forth your own response to that accusation. And if there's a negative decision, the opportunity to appeal. So sort of like a basic a due process kind of guarantee. Yeah. And so they, and I appreciate you sharing that. And the media companies have their own free speech protections, which means that the First Amendment isn't just for persons, it's also for certain entities. Now, as far as I understand, there there's categories of these entities, right? So a social media company would have a different designation than, than say, a telecommunications firm. Oh, I see. Now what you're getting into is um, the First Amendment status is exactly the same. But Congress has passed some laws that regulate different sectors of the communications world differently. And uh, the U.S. Supreme Court um, has not really reviewed the details of all of these. And, you know, one could argue that maybe all uh, media entities should be treated the same, but the Supreme Court has allowed for certain differences uh, in treatment. Uh, But basically, um, social media companies under the First Amendment have the same free speech rights as the New York Times or Fox News or Mm -hmm. your podcast or me as an individual. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I can understand that I don't have a right to be an actor in the next Stranger Things season on Netflix, (laughs) no matter how many characters they continue to add. But at the same time, there's got to be a fine line between the media company's free speech and discrimination, 
right? And well, you know what you're getting into is an idea that's um, uh, referred to sometimes as common carrier, sometimes mm-hmm. as public utility, sometimes right. as public accommodations, and. Within the last year or so, as their evidence has and begun to mount and concern has begun to mount about the unprecedented power that these unaccountable tech giants have to not only shut down individuals such as you, uh, but to, as you were saying, um, in ways that we are not even aware of, affect politics by, you know, clearly by shutting down Donald Trump, but many others as well who get less publicity than he does. Um, People are becoming concerned. And we've seen proposals from experts, uh, very ideologically diverse experts saying, maybe we ought to think of these companies, even though they're private, as analogous to the landline phone companies or before that, the um, um, the telegraph companies, or the water suppliers, or the railroads in the 19th century, essential mm-hmm. infrastructure that have monopoly type power um, that without whose services individuals really can't fully, fairly, and equally function in the modern world. And the base in the concept of a private company that's treated as a public utility was really invented way back in in merry old England under the the common law. And it applied to entities such as as inns, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, people had to, they open their door to serve anybody, they then cannot shut out anybody because you can't travel freely if you don't have access to um, public conveyances or public accommodations. And um, the basic obligation of an entity that's that's designated a public utility or common carrier is that they have to have non-discriminatory, fair, and equal treatment toward all comers. So that's yeah. an idea that I think is is very worth exploring. I think so too. And and if there was a media company or a studio, a Hollywood studio that that has a show and six billion people are in this next show, we we might be looking or thinking differently about those private companies. I mean, could you imagine? Let's say AT and T is your your phone carrier, and you get a, an automated voicemail tomorrow that says we don't really like your phone call with Todd the other day and we're dropping you from our service. That actually feels closer to me to what Facebook has, has you know, is doing because of the amount of people using the service. So it feels more like a public square in that way, a modern public square. And if you can just silently remove anybody from entering the square, that that seems like it could have negative consequences, like serious negative consequences. And when there, I mean, there's already been a history, like you, you've pointed out with every technological innovation, with every broadcasting tool, there is a bit of a moral panic as a reaction going all the way back to the printing press. And as time goes on, we've, we kind of understand that it's not as unsafe as we thought for these ideas to be in books, for for bad ideas uh, to be broadcast on a show or on the radio, because we we correct ourselves 
But you're talking about a very different kind of danger, Todd, right? It's yes, you're not talking, yeah. You're not talking about the danger of ideas getting out there. You're talking about the danger of ideas not getting out there because of these powerful gatekeepers right. that are not accountable uh, under the Constitution. And so we have to yeah. find other ways of holding them to account. The other possible solution, but this, you know, is very idealistic. I have no idea how re- realistic it is, would be that we wouldn't have just a few powerful monopoly-like gatekeepers, but we'd have, you know, thousands and thousands. And, you know, so what if Facebook kicked you off? You could go to another one where your exactly. the community standards were in accord with your uh, free speech. Exactly. And when there are these movements for restricting speech, we already have enough counterfactuals. Uh, it's kind of myopic in the sense that we can go back in time. We can see how, uh, I think you mentioned in your book, leaders like Eugene Debs questioning whether or not the working class really have have had a voice in whether or not we go to war and that violate, violating anti-sedition laws at the time to other parts of the world. So it's myopic in time and in space. And I think sometimes people don't have access to that. Your book actually gave me a lot more data to add in into the equation. So when, when we consider that, I think it can, it can give us pause when we're calling for more censorship, even though I care about safety too. Of course, we all do. And I think part of the problem with a very common arguments about free speech is that and why we have too much of it and why it's dangerous and why censorship would be actually beneficial is the argument very often not only starts with talking about the harm of certain free speech, but it ends there. Disinformation is harmful. You know, hate speech is harmful. Terrorist speech is harmful. Well, right. yeah, it may very well be. I, I have to say, not necessarily, right? Because right. all of us don't, because we hear hateful speech, go out and become hate mongers, right? Some of right. us do exactly the opposite. We become anti-race, you know, crusaders against uh, racial mm-hmm. injustice. But even assuming for the sake of argument that the speech was necessarily harmful, that doesn't therefore prove that we should move to censorship. In fact, the record shows, and I cited so many examples throughout my book, uh, that censorship ends up being much more harmful than speech itself, including, ironically, often to the very same underlying values, right? So you see hate speech laws around the world, uh, including in this country, that are passed in the with the goal, I think, in good faith, seeking mm-hmm. to um, advance the, uh, raise the voices of uh, racial and other minorities who have traditionally been subject to oppression, and yet the laws consistently are right. disproportionately enforced against those very groups and speakers for reasons that are predictable, right? You know, we hear evidence about structural and systemic racism and how, you know, the drug laws and other criminal laws are disproportionately enforced against racial minorities. So you take a law that's so subjective as suppressing hate speech or disinformation or extremist speech, of course, predictably, that's going to be used to suppress dissident voices, just as the sedition law, as you point out, was enforced against Eugene Debs, the socialist candidate and a critic of government policy. 
And based on our history and, and the counterfactuals around the world, we ought to be more concerned about that probably just by witnessing how this has played out, that it can be corrupted and that power can be wielded basically to silence the vulnerable once again, or to manipulate the vulnerable. Can we try to maybe understand hate speech a little bit more? Um, the lack of unanimity for a definition there is also a problem. And then where, where do you see something like disinformation or misinformation? I'm not sure I understand the difference between the two. Where does that fall on the spectrum of, of harm? So the term misinformation is usually used to connote an intentional falsehood as opposed okay. to disinformation, which is something that's false or misleading, but not necessarily intentionally so. Uh, there is absolutely no doubt that speech of all in all of those categories can potentially be harmful, right? Not that I, not inevitably. The difference between you know that 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 old childhood nursery rhyme: "Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me." It's not true that words will never hurt me. We can all cite examples of words that hurt us every day of our lives, right? Sure. But the difference is that words will not necessarily hurt me. It's not true that words will never hurt me, but it's also not true that words will always hurt me. And our parents told us that nursery rhyme because they wanted us to, you know, sure up our own self-confidence and resolve and resilience so we wouldn't empower those who are trying to take us down with words uh, to, to hurt us. Um, we're certainly, we should not believe everything we hear, whether it's from a purported scientist or a purported, you know, world leader. Um, we, and, and one of the good things about the, so we should not necessarily be harmed by disinformation. As to hate speech or extremist speech, again, because somebody says something hateful, I should hope that the vast majority of us don't therefore become supporters of a hateful ideology. To the contrary, we become aware that there are problems of hatred and discrimination, and hopefully that redoubles our resolve to do the kind of wonderful work you're doing, Todd, uh, to counter uh, hatred and, and evil with kindness and goodness, right? Um, right. So, so the, the issue isn't um, what is their potential harm in speech, it is what is the most effective way to counter that harm, to prevent it from happening in the first place. Uh, for those people who have been persuaded to join hate groups or are flirting with it, or to become extremists or to become, you know, join a conspiracy because of disinformation, we have to reach out to them with education and with compassion and with empathy and, and information. Uh, every study shows that treating somebody like a criminal is not a way uh, to change that person's heart and mind it's effectively. And we see that even, I do some work in addiction, we see that around the world too. The oh, yes. more stringent the, the criminalization of addiction, the worse outcomes you get. And the more you decriminalize and reinvest those resources into reconnecting those people back in, with the community and 
and building meaning in their life. The more it's a very strong. It's a very strong analogy, and you know, one of my frustrations is that so starting with something very positive. In the recent past, we've seen such a growing support from right to left in the public and among politicians for restorative justice. Right, you know, right. to tone down this overly harsh, overly punitive criminal justice system uh, with respect to drugs, among many other crimes, recognizing that that's the most effective way to uh, restore um, the, the individual and, and to restore communities. The one exception where so many people, including liberals who are usually kind at heart, um, you know, bleeding the phrase bleeding heart liberal, where they really want to be punitive and harsh is if somebody says something, not even with a hateful motive, but just, you know, unwittingly insensitive or, you know, doesn't use the right pronoun or raises a question about yeah. a policy, you know, oh, we've got to shun them and shame them. And if they even had a t racist tweet when they were an adolescent and, and under the influence of alcohol and have apologized for it, no, we're going to retract their college admission. You know, like it's as if it's it's, it's the mark of Cain. They can never be forgiven for that. It's unforgivable and it's, well, yeah. and it's forever. Even some of our most liberal progressive leaders today holding high offices have edified their position over the years and, and have been allowed to do so in public, to think through their positions in public. And ignorance is, is not synonymous with malevolence. Exactly. They can go together, but they don't always go together. And there's a, there's enough salient examples also from your book about when hateful speech actually leads that person who who's maybe coming from that echo chamber, like mm -hmm. um, the woman from the Westboro Baptist Church. Megan Phelps Roper. Poignant example, correct. Yeah. Or maybe you could share a little bit more about that story. Oh, that's that really I, struck I, me. Yeah, and, and she's one of, of many um, uh, people who were not only members of hateful organizations, but uh, actually leaders of those organizations. In Megan's case, she was born into this church, and they basically, I think people know them best because of their protests outside the funerals of slain military uh, personnel, because they objected to the United States uh, admission of uh, LGBTQ people into, into the U.S. military. Um, and Megan went online, having been born and bred in this church and really fervently believing in its ideology and demonstrating uh, you know, with picket signs, not only against gay people, but against the Catholic Church and the Pope and Jews and basically anybody who was not a member of their church was hated by them. She went online to try to recruit people to her church. And in the process, she encountered uh, a number of people, most importantly, an, a rabbi in Israel who engaged with her on the Bible verses that she and her fellow church members were interpreting to uh, lead them to these hateful views. And he wasn't, he certainly wasn't, you know, punishing her, 
He was, and he wasn't didactic. He was just questioning her and bringing her about like an excellent teacher to bringing her to question her own views. And she ultimately came to repudiate those views and uh, left the church, which meant leaving her entire family. She had led a very isolated life. She was in her 20s at this point. And that must have been extremely scary to leave, you know, your whole religious ideology, your political ideology, your family, your friends, and strike out into a world where she was afraid that everybody would hate her because she understood that she was viewed as having been a hate monger and having caused so much harm. Uh, and she resolved that she would spend the rest of her, her life toward trying to uh, undo some of the harm she had done. Um, Todd, there's something else I learned after yeah. I wrote the book, which I find really, really fascinating, because you say there's no agreed upon definition of hate speech, and there never could be, because hate is an emotion. And, you know, the, all, I've read every hate speech law around the world, and everyone that's been enacted, everyone that's been proposed, and it basically comes down to synonyms for hatred, you know, any speech that's degrading or dehumanizing or demeaning, and no two people can agree about that. You know, what one people sees as, see as, as hateful, somebody else sees as loving. I give many examples in my book. Some people see, including government officials, say, oh, Black Lives Matter is hate speech against white people and against police officers. And other people say Blue Lives Matter is hate speech against black people. And other people say All Lives Matter is hate speech against, you know, racial minorities and, and so forth. Some people even say that free speech is hate speech. So um, the, I, I, the most powerful example of how inherently subjective the concept is came from an interview I heard Megan Phelps Roper do about her wonderful memoir called uh, Unfollow, Loving and Leaving, the Westboro Baptist Church. And she was talking about this slogan that's their website. And she pointed out to the interviewer, you know, www.godhatesfags.org. We're not saying we hate. We're the only people who really love them because God hates them. She's speaking from, you know, her prior beliefs. We truly believed that they were condemned to eternal damnation. In, to be tortured in hell forever unless we redeemed them. So we were trying to redeem them from their homosexuality. And that's an act of love. And every time I think about that, it's so humbling. Obviously, I don't share that perspective, but it really makes you realize it's not motivated by hatred. It's motivated by love. It may be love that's reflecting a misinterpretation of, of Bible verses, but it's the opposite of, 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 of wishing ill upon well, with, the gay within people. Within that cultural context and that echo chamber, it is a matter of life and death. You know, yeah. They're thinking of saving the soul. I mean, as disturbing as that is, and that's why something like contact theory is so important because we get exposed to better. I mean, even in a less uh, less offensive way, something like flat earth theory would be misinformation. I mean, just taking on the surface, whatever else it means, I don't know. But the theory that the earth is flat and not curved, 
has been able to proliferate because of social media. And some people have argued with me that we wouldn't have all of these flat earthers if it wasn't for social media. At the same time, I see public figures in in real time revise their their view on that because there's such clear counter speech now. You can just show somebody a video about uh, lunar eclipse, or you can watch with the person yourself a lunar eclipse, and and at least that will prove that even if the Earth is flat, it's a disc as mm-hmm. it moves as mm-hmm. the shadow moves across mm-hmm. the moon, or a boat disappearing on the horizon doesn't just fade all out. The bottom disappears first. And it, you can see people grow and, and change their view. But if, if so, so, so there's the other effect of pushing some bad ideas or, or wrong ideas, if it's misinformation underground, thereby preventing the opportunity for the robust perfect. dialogue needed to actually improve, improve through the scientific process. I mean, people have an observation and they form a conspiracy theory based on what they see. And we can test it. We can help people test it out by putting all these counterexamples and, we, and showing the holes, the flaws in, any, in anyone's thinking. But for me in my little kindness crusade, and when you share the story about that church, we look at people or, or we hear something that offends us, but we don't see the whole person. Mm-hmm. Looking at a person is like looking at a, an avatar on a screen or an icon. And, and behind that is their whole novel, their whole book. I mean, people have sympathized with awful fictional characters like Walter White just because they got his whole character arc in Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we forget that with each other, that there, is, there are so many forces beyond the, this moment that, that right. shapes a person. Right. If, if we're compassionate, we ought to be interested in that story and, and then understanding the forces that contribute to hate or discrimination or prejudice or inequality. And and that's the what has fueled this wonderful restorative justice movement. Yeah. I remember my my longtime colleague and friend Brian Stevenson, the amazing crusader against uh, the death penalty. Uh, what I mean, people say, how can you defend these people who have committed these heinous crimes? And he said, a person is not reduced or should not be reduced to the single worst thing he has ever done. Um, and that, and and I think most of us accept that, even with respect to homicide, but too few of us accept that with respect to an insensitive uh, remark, right, or an unwittingly uh, offensive remark. So sometimes I think then we're we're confounding the means with the end because it does feel good to shut up somebody that is stirring up. Uh, ill will, stirring up aggression, stirring up or inciting uh, what what feels like the risk of of violence. So I sympathize with that. I understand that. And well, the question but, is, what is your goal, right? If your goal exactly. is a, right, okay, yes, we're what in the same wavelength, <laughs> right? So we we ought to be asking ourselves, what are our goals, and then be open to what would would truly achieve that advance and, that goal. Right. You know, it might give you temporary satisfaction Mm -hmm. to shut somebody down, but what have you accomplished in terms of changing their attitude and improving the world? (laughs) Exactly. Some of the other points that stood out to me from your book is, you know, I I personally, as someone interested in psychology, I I often would wonder when I had patients that, that would listen to a lot of 
really intense or graphic lyrics and like heavy metal, if that could be contributing. And I, and I looked at the research on that and I'd find that there's, there's no correlation between violent lyrics and violent behavior. And same with video games are orthogonal to, to like violent video games and aggressive behavior. So sometimes our intuitions about a lot of these things are just off as well. And it's so best to just get more, more knowledge. One of the examples I like to use is, is the Bible. I mean, there are so many really violent and including Absolutely. violently misogynist um, scenes in the Bible. And I, I don't think most people would want to ban it for that reason. So, you know, there's an understanding with certain works that um, the depiction of violence, even in very graphic terms, can serve very, very different ends than, um, than the negative one of, of instigating people to violence. I mean, that said, it's also true that warmongers and, you know, violent individuals have said, I was inspired by the Bible or by the Quran, uh, maybe with credibility. Maybe that was what became the straw that broke the camel's back in their case uh, to commit acts of violence. But that certainly cannot be the standard for censoring books that are read by millions and millions and millions of people right. around the world throughout history, the vast majority of which have been inspired to commit acts of love and not violence. And we generally look back and acknowledge that burning books was bad, whatever the books were about. And almost always they were books that we, we needed to, to make progress socially or politically. If you ask people today, I think, you know, who are calling for, for stricter censorship uh, policies, you know, what books would you ban? And you just put it in a different framing. I think people feel a little uncomfortable being the one to decide what kinds of books they would ban because we just kind of understand when it's in the form of a book that it can be debated. And I hate to disabuse you of yeah. that notion, uh, Todd, but we have a record number of book bannings in this country uh, in the recent past as documented by well, annual surveys. Yeah, that have been done by the American Library Association and by uh, Pan America, which is a wonderful organization that uh, deals with free speech and, and literature and journalism. And um, the, the attacks are in public libraries and in school libraries, and they come from across the political spectrum. Well, I was going to um, ask you that. Yeah, yeah. The, the vast majority of books uh, that are attacked from the right uh, involve themes of racism and also LGBTQ, um, sexuality and gender identity. Either the characters are uh, of those descriptions and or the authors are. Mm. Uh, but from the left, ironically, some of the same books are attacked, although for uh, very different reasons. So um, from the left, we've had progressive school districts that have you know, recurrently attacked Huckleberry Finn um, of Mice and Men, 
to kill a mockingbird uh, because of uh, the white savior uh, mm-hmm. notion and because of use of racist slurs, even though it's very clear that in context, they're not used at all to endorse a racist meaning. So again, I want to come back to the notion that you and I both started with. And we can't overemphasize it too much that uh, we have to neutrally, staunchly defend free speech, uh, including in public libraries and public schools, access to all you know, in the schools, age-appropriate material that the teachers decide uh, or the librarians decide are educationally appropriate. There was a very disturbing article, excellent article in the New York Times within the last week uh, by Pamela Paul about uh, soft underground censorship in the publishing industry, very similar to the problem that you talked about with social media, I mean, these are private sector entities. They have no, obviously, no obligation to publish anything, let alone right. everything uh, that crosses their transom. Uh, and yet, um, there's a lot of evidence that they are pulling the plug and not um, publishing books that they are afraid would lead to controversy, not because of lack of quality, either in terms of research or if it's nonfiction or literary quality if it's fiction, uh, but maybe because there will be charges of cultural appropriation or insensitivity or white savior narratives or, mm-hmm. you know, pick your poison. And this has backward reverberations of literary agents not wanting to represent books that might not get published, which means that authors are not going to write books that might not be accepted by the literary agents. And again, how can you possibly measure um, the, you know, unfathomable degree of self-censorship in response to the widely reported incidents that have come to light? You know, I can think of a couple examples of books that were claimed by Oprah, for example, and then suddenly a Twitter mob will descend upon the author or the book because of some perceived insensitivity. And um, and the books have been withdrawn even after they've wow. been published. Well, you know, there's a big difference psychologically between never hitting send or never or hitting delete on a screen and actually burning the book in public. And so now we're actually psychologically distanced from that after, you know, hearing your, your description of this. So that it, that's really concerning. And again, comes back to what I was saying before, I guess, I don't know what I don't know. I don't know what I don't have access to. It's one thing for the public to know, like, this isn't going to be here, but it will be here and you can make, make a choice, but you know, like coming back to social media, when I'm removed, people don't know that they don't have access to certain kind mind content. And and freedom, this should be said explicitly, freedom yeah. of speech under the First Amendment and in general means not only the right to convey information and ideas, but also the right to receive information and ideas. Uh, Frederick That's Douglass, right. the great abolitionist and great free speech champion, said every act of censorship is a double harm because it harms not only the speaker, but also the audience. I agree. So just circling back quickly to social media before we wrap wrap things up. I've, I'm loving every minute of this and I'm so grateful to you. And I'm sure my listeners will be because we're, 
we're learning so much uh, from your expertise. But when we look at the, the different types of innovations that have come out, there was a certain dynamic with the printing press and radio and film and television and so on. There, there was a very limited amount of content creators and, and maybe larger and larger consumers but then social media was just like, you know, exponential pr proliferation. And everybody's also a content creator and a consumer. So, so maybe just taking a step back, it's so fast and so furious. We, we don't yet know how to crowdsource our, our, our own ethical behavior. When, when I think back to something like the email it was used in a pretty spammy way by friends and family. We were always sending these um, prayers and blessings that you got to send on to 12 people, and then you're going to get your dreams come true. And people thought that was a really good way to connect with their loved ones. And then pretty quickly, we realized that that's, that's unwelcome. But it didn't take email companies, it didn't take Yahoo or Hotmail to actually remove users, we started to police ourselves or, or govern ourselves, I, I should say, or crowdsource. Now, of course, there's a huge problem with, with spam uh, from people trying to steal our identities. And it seems like they have more access to us than people like me just share, you know, sharing wisdom from the ages. Mm -hmm. and, and so maybe it's just still, we're still confused. I know people like Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook acted like was posturing as somebody who didn't want to get into that space or be the arbiter of truth. But now it seems Facebook has pivoted to safety being the, the uh, you know, the, the primacy is around safety now. And if someone like Elon Musk gets into, gets buys Twitter and relaxes those rules altogether, I think this, uh, the, the waters are going to get muddier than you probably could have ever imagined in 2018, just in the last few years since you wrote what felt like a, you know, very clear assessment of the state of things, but it got certainly a lot muddier since then. Well, you know, the, you're, you're, you're saying something now that again, among the many really interesting and important points, there's one that uh, you had also made earlier, which I didn't get a chance to uh, underscore sure. for, for your listeners, which is really important. Uh, it's one thing for private sector entities to make their own decisions about what content they will host and what they will not. It's another thing entirely if they collude with the government or are under pressure from the government, including veiled and sometimes not so veiled threats from the government. You better take down this disinformation or that disinformation about the election, about COVID, or you know we're going to investigate you. We may repeal your statutory immunity. We may subject you to antitrust regulation. And I think that's what's happening. That, as you say, uh, Zuckerberg and before the current uh, leadership at Twitter, Jack Dorsey, we're very proud of being free speech forums and, you know, letting all voices uh, flow and people decide what they would look at and what they would not look at. Uh, but that changed. Um, it changed around 2018, exactly, right. you know, when my wow. book came out. Um, and uh, I think in no small measure because of increasing government pressure. And uh, there is- and we really an, failed that dress rehearsal, I might add, uh, with the pandemic 
because yeah. of the, I think the lack of honest and open dialogue. I don't know what your thoughts are about it, but you can, you may continue. <laughs> Well, thank you. I mean, um, the First Amendment uh, does apply to a purportedly private sector action that uh, the courts decide is not really completely voluntary by the private sector actor alone. If it's sufficiently collaborating with the government, uh, then we have to treat it as government action, which is subject to wow. the First Amendment. And there are a number of lawsuits now that are exploring that that theory, gathering evidence, uh, because it's very fact specific to show that a particular um, speaker was deplatformed because the Biden administration or somebody in Congress uh, pressured the company to do that. Well, given the amount of money in campaigns and the amount of contributions from the tech sector, I mean, we ought to be concerned about when a, a tech company is lockstep with a particular political candidate and what that means for us and for the ability to be able to have dissenting views from from our government. And, you know, I didn't even think about it on that level. So I appreciate you saying that. When you talk about the campaign issue, Todd, here's another uh, irony that um, most liberals, progressives and Democrats absolutely hate Citizens United. And, you know, they're so yeah. upset uh, that corporations get to spend money to uh, to to campaign, you know, to buy campaign ads in support of or against candidates. And yet these are the very same liberals, progressives, and Democrats who are saying, we want these powerful corporations not only to engage in their own, spend money to engage in their own advocacy, but we want them to be able to pick and choose who gets to speak, which political candidates get to speak, which experts get to speak, which podcasters get to speak. Isn't that an infinitely greater power that does much more potential damage to our democracy. I mean, isn't that inconsistent for somebody who really thinks corporations have too much power over speech and over politics? It, it doesn't add up. Absolutely. I'm also concerned about that ruling in Texas from the Supreme Court that protected uh, the, the right of the social media companies to remove people for their, from, for their viewpoints. It seems very vague. And and uh, when you're talking about viewpoint neutrality, so that doesn't seem a step in that direction. But the second part is, does that seem odd to you if if the court is a little bit more conservative now? Well, uh, so what the I actually agree it was a lower court decision. Uh, in Texas, although it will be appealed. I don't know if it will get all the way to the U.S. Okay. Supreme Court, which oh, doesn't okay, have to okay. hear the case. Um, but um, because that was similar to what the point I made earlier when I said as a First Amendment supporter who supports first, some First Amendment rights for these companies, they've not yet been deemed to be public utilities or common carriers. That couldn't be done unless there were some legislation that was passed to do that. And, and that hasn't happened yet. Uh, so they are still on the same status as other media, including your podcast, including, you know, the New York Times and, uh, you know, Fox 
Fox News, you name it. Um, and, and therefore, I think it does. I agree with the judge. It violates their First Amendment rights to uh, tell them what criteria they can and cannot use in deciding who can be on their platforms. There's another problem with that law, which is that it's very vague in its, in its terminology. And so it really doesn't give uh, sufficient guidance for even if somebody wanted to comply with it, it would be very difficult to do that. And are we setting dangerous precedents then for future demagogue tech entrepreneurs in lockstep with future presidents? Everything could possibly be a dangerous precedent, including a court decision that says we're going to tell a private sector communications company, uh, what expression it must host and what expression it must not host. And, you know, and we're going to police whether um, it's politically balanced. Can you imagine having courts do that? Mm-mm. We used to have something in this country called the Fairness Doctrine that applied to broadcast TV, I think because of a, because of a very old and highly criticized Supreme Court decision, which I think was wrong, basically saying uh, broadcast media are not entitled to full First Amendment protection. And it was a disaster. It sounds great in theory. But every study that's been done shows that under every presidential administration, it was enforced, you know, disproportionately to silence whatever media companies were critical of the administration and its policies. It's such a subjective tool. We really don't want government to have it. I mean, I'm nervous about private sector companies having unrestrained power, uh, but I'm even more nervous about the government having that power. Do you know of any change in the in the way uh, the government is viewing the social media companies? Are they starting to see, oh, potential uh, to see a more like uh, telecommunications? Wait, yeah, Todd, there is so much activity going on on Capitol Hill. I can't even keep track of the yeah. number of proposed bills. So, I mean, you mentioned a state law in Texas. A number of states have their own laws that either uh, enacted or in process, but there are many, many that are floating around Congress now. And I would say most experts, you know, the ones I really respect, including those at, at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, are being quite tentative. They're saying, you know, here are some ideas that are worth exploring, but these are such complex matters. And, you know, we want to be so uh, aware of potential unforeseen adverse consequences. We have to move really slowly and really carefully here. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this wisdom with us and and expanding my vision and the the curiosities and interests of of my listeners, because this is such an important topic. And it really does touch on the issue of kindness by listening to each other, by being open to each other, by creating space where where we can hear these ideas, all the ideas of people and, and be able to protect the democratic process or take care of our democracy in that way. So I'm very grateful to you. Um, Nadine, is there any way that people can follow, find your work, your books, or follow things that you I don't use doing? social media because <laughs> okay. I'm very concerned about privacy, among other things. But 
Um, my, I'm e- easily found through Googling and you type in my name and you'll find, you know, a zillion YouTubes of uh, various talks to be found and podcasts. Well. Um, so I, I appreciate that. And I also am very old fashioned. I do respond to emails uh, to the very best of my ability, as you know, Todd. Absolutely. So if anybody has a question, you know, Nothing ventured, nothing gained. You can easily find my email address. If you Google, my faculty webpage will come up and, and show it. Um, and I'm deli- always delighted to engage with concerned uh, people who share, especially those who share my commitment to free speech. But I'm also interested in engaging with people who have different perspectives. Well, thank you so much for all the work that you've done for you. And right right back at you, Todd. I'm so glad that. to have met you and become familiar with your really important work. Me too. I wish you all the best. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.